0: everyone. I'm Anna Marie Clifton, product manager at Yammer.
1: And I am Sandy McPherson, co founder of D Double.ai.
0: And this is the Clearly Product Book Club podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Creative Confidence, a book by Tom and David Kelly, the co founders of IDEO and also the D School at Stanford. Creative Confidence was written in 2013 and it covers why it's important to have confidence in your own creativity, how to bring that out in yourself, and how to bring that out in your team. So, Sandy, do you want to jump in? And- I just want to give you that one little, if we have return listeners,
1: you may notice that I introduced myself differently. So I am no longer working on Queb. I'm now working on a new company. And so you may hear me talk about that company, which is D-double, from this point on, and I'll tell everybody more about it sometime in the not too distant future. Exciting. Yeah. So a couple of things that I thought were interesting, I think overall, the one thing that struck me when I was reading this book, I realized, oh, wait a minute, what I do in my like day to day, I'm doing air quotes right now, job is really creative and I have a lot of creative freedom and I never really realized it. And I think I take it for granted. Especially uh, with respect to the, I think, the intended audience of this book. So that was one thing where, it just in general, just a little preface to my points is I, I did find that a lot of the statements to me were, I don't want to say obvious, but they're things that I believe I already practice and already do and are basically requisite to working on and like making a startup from nothing. I did really enjoy it. I thought they gave some great examples on how to do all of that stuff. But for me, the majority of it wasn't new, like amazing, compelling content. I find a lot of the books that we do, I learn a lot of new things. In this case, I found that a lot of it was, if anything, just like confirming
0: like, OK, I'm doing stuff right, and I should keep on doing it. Hmm. Yeah. I noticed that a couple points he said, you don't have to move to Silicon Valley <laughs> and start a company to like be creative in your job, and sure. I'm like, yeah, but for those of us who, who have who done, are. right. Yeah. So first
1: point, the one thing that I thought was funny was they talk about this idea of living in beta, and it reminded me that on the Quib website, on the right-hand side, It literally still says, do you have feedback? Thanks for trying out the Quib beta. If you have comments, email Sandy. And it's funny because I thought about taking that down several times because clearly the default and de facto definition of beta no longer necessarily applies to the state of where Quib is. But I really enjoyed this sort of underlying ethos of it's never actually, like, fully baked. Mm. And it's always actually in this constant state of being in a beta, and it can and should always be open and willing to change. And I should always be open and willing to, to change the product and to learn based off of how people are using it and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, this sort of reminded me of that, and they talk about it here in the book around how you know you may not actually launch. And I think, again, that's one thing that's pretty core to how people in the Valley operate and how people working in tech think about their companies, I think especially at early stage startups. But it was something that I think would probably be super useful to people who aren't used to that type of a cadence and that mentality around the thing that you have out there in the world. Is broken and isn't actually in the final state and that's fine and that's actually a good thing. Mm. Yeah, the take the chicken out
0: of the oven mentality. Have you heard of this? I've never (laughs) heard. I thought you were going to say chicken and egg something. I was was expecting oven to be in that sentence. I forget who told me this the first time. I was working on just like a side project and I was like, yeah, I'm just not ready. It's like a thing, but I'm not really comfortable with where it's at. And my friend was like, You gotta take the chicken out of the oven. Like, it may not be done, but at some point, you gotta take it out of the oven or you'll like bake it too long and, you know, overcook, blah, blah, blah. Um, And just that mentality of like, yeah, it's okay to like take it out and show people and like you don't need to have this like perfect thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's like, test the temperature, like see the things. And and, and just just that kind of little quirky phrase around it, I thought it was really fun. That's funny. Google is like, Gmail is still in beta, right? I have not heard that. Like, it says beta. Oh, does it? Yeah, pretty sure. Um, like when you log in, this is like Gmail and then a Beta in oh, the top. Interesting. Bottom. Or at least it, it did up until like at least a year Recently. ago. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I, th- I think that's like part of the, the Google ethos as yeah. well. It's like you're not ever done. You may right. have a billion users, Right.
1: right. You're but you're still, not done. Yeah. What about how does this sort of manifest itself at Yammer? Because I feel like it's something that's also it is different at bigger companies. This idea of like you have to have a thing that works for everybody is much more of the mentality versus like for me like when i launch something i fully expect that people will email and be like oh my god i can't blah 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 and i'm just kind of like right "Eh, Right, part of it whereas i feel like that's not really an option for somebody working on a team yeah. with products like you are.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, enterprise uh, is always kind of an interesting space. It's kind of fascinating because you'll you'll constantly get people who are like, oh, I'm not satisfied with this feature. You should iterate on it. You should make it a new feature or something like that. And then you do. And then a whole other segment of people are like, oh, I'm not satisfied that you made this a new thing. <laughs> uh, so I think one of the things about being a PM at a company that has customers is you just have to swallow the pill that like you are not going to be able to make everyone happy. Inaction will make people unhappy. Action will make other people unhappy. You just have to go forward with the best course of action that you can divine and not rely on that feedback loop to be the thing that drives you.
1: Mm. How do you guys think about like if you release something
0: and
1: it's actually like broken for people?
0: So are you talking about like if we release something that was broken, if we would ever do that on purpose? Like, do you perhaps, immediately
1: perhaps, roll it back? Does everybody like, oh, sh-, or what is the like mentality right, right. on the team? You're like, oh my god, shit, roll it back. Right, right, Rah. right. I mean, or like for me, if I'm like, eh. so I'm just <laughs> right. curious, Absolutely. like what it looks yeah. like.
0: So it definitely depends on like what type of thing is broken and mm-hmm. to what extent it is broken. Sure. So we definitely have SLAs, which is a fun acronym, three letter acronym in mm-hmm. the industry. So a service level agreement is an SLA, and it tends to define the thing that you've agreed with your customer that you are going to maintain. For example, we have an SLA around message posting, where if it is ever the case that you cannot post a message in Yammer, that's considered a contract-breaking issue. And so then... Customers like, can demand their money back yeah. for that month or yeah. things like that. So we have these specific contracts kind of around what can not work functionally. It's different with a new feature. You obviously don't usually have SLAs around new features, but there's obviously interaction effects. So if I release a new feature around some kind of clever post feedback that happens, mm-hmm. if that breaks posting for some people, then that's SLA breaking. Right. And obviously yeah. we would roll that back immediately. Yeah. So that becomes like a P0 bug. For other things, I'm trying to think if we had anything that I would consider broken. There's definitely been instances where like, oh, this looks weird on some particular browser. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we evaluate, like, well, how many users are on that particular browser? Is it something Mm -hmm. that we say we support? Because we also have a list of browsers and versions that we support of those browsers. So uh, if it's not one that we've listed as supporting, then we don't necessarily feel an onus to to go back and fix it. but there's always going to be like something where someone is like, oh, well, I'm logging in through my like Safari on <laughs> Kindle, and this thing won't load. And we're like, OK. First, you should not Sorry. be doing that. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely have a long list of things that we look at before we launch a feature to make sure we've thought about the common cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we break something outside of that, we just assess like how, how many people does it impact and how serious is that break mm-hmm. and if we need to change it. Gotcha.
1: So to just kind of keep on this for a second, just because having yeah clarity inside of like a bigger organization with a much more established product is interesting and I bet very different. The question I have would be, do you think that on your team, whether it's just you or anyone in particular or the whole team, has this sense of what you are releasing, is a beta or do people have this sort of like understanding of what you're putting out into the world is like final final like done fully the chicken is no longer has to go back in the oven it's like a fully baked chicken (laughs) yeah it's a fully baked chicken
0: Um, so that's a a huge point of consternation because there are features where you should ship them in a way where you are very happy walking away with that living in the product forever and then there are other times where you want to get something quick out there to validate or invalidate a future direction and something that I've noticed that's really interesting is if you walk into a project and you're not very clear about which of those types mm. of projects you're running, it can create a lot of thrash within the project team, especially with your designers and also your engineers. Sure. Um, because then you'll walk away at the end and they're like, wait, no, I didn't realize this was like something that was definitely going to stay. Uh-huh. Or you could like roll it back because we learned what we wanted to learn. And they're like, oh, wait, but I thought this was like something we wanted to definitely ship no right. matter what. And then also a bunch of time on it. Exactly. And, and that's yeah. one of the other issues is sometimes people over invest in making it a really high fidelity experience when you're really just trying to learn something and it should be lower fidelity or like less polished. So one of the things I like to think about is when I'm starting a project, how do I message to the team around? Hey, OK, this is something where it's really important that we get this to a place where we're happy that it's in the product forever, because most likely this is going to ship. Like we may A/B test things and then ship them even if they're like flat or slightly negative, because we have strategic reasons to do so. Another thing that's confusing for people is not every A-B test is trying to determine if something should be shipped. A lot of times, we'll A-B test things because we want to learn something along the way to shipping exactly that feature, even without changing it. But we just want to like evaluate like what is the negative impact of that. For example, we recently removed a live chat component of the product, and we wanted to move away from being a product that had live chat embedded. And so we like did a lot of thoughtful exploration around how to do that best and shipped it as part of an A-B test. Even though we knew we were always going to kill that right. chat experience, we just wanted to like validate like how big of a hit is this going to be mm-hmm. and get a solid understanding around that to see how much more we might need to iterate. And making sure that the team knows that in advance is really important because otherwise there can be a lot of emotional thrash mm-hmm. when it comes due to like, look at the A-B test results or maybe even not test it and just ship it out right. And one of the other things I found is that even if you do talk to your team at the beginning about that, it's really important to keep talking to them about it. And to talk about it towards the end, when you're like about to ship it, or when you're about to ship the test, and then also again when you're evaluating the results, be like, as we said at this point, this point and this other point, this was not something that we were planning on shipping, so this is how we're evaluating it. So my overall take on the book was kind of I thought a lot about the the stuff that they said about team creativity, because mm-hmm. I think that a lot of this was targeted around like how to bring creativity into your organization. And if you're in a position where like it is your organization, that's one thing, versus if you're just kind of part of it and trying to navigate that. So one thing that I noted is they talk about creativity from the very first page to the very last, and they don't really address what is creativity or like define it yeah. very clearly. And that's obviously intentional, and I thought that was great. But one of the things I just wanted to kind of touch on is hone in a little bit on this in this conversation that you and I are having around like how we're talking about creativity. Mm -hmm. And I'll use some things that they brought up in the book as well. So one of the things that I really loved that they talked about, even from the very first chapter, is the fact that creativity is often equated with artisticness, And that's definitely not the case. Like creativity, you can have a a creative approach to rhetoric and dialogue. And that's full creativity, but no like artistic output Mm -hmm. per se. And I think that's something that we latch on to in the English language really heavily around, like, creativity. That's what artists have. Well, it's
1: also something, I mean, specifically in tech, that I find people don't give credence to developers as being creative Mm. because they picture them as working in the world of logic and things that are very, like, black and white. Right. And so people talk about, like, you know, creativity, blah, blah, it's in the gray. And, like, literally you're like, nothing will work. <laughs> right. So well. it's just, like, this, I think that's one of the, I know when I first moved here and I, like, knew nothing about tech, this idea that developers were creative to me was a little bit of, like, a what? Mm. Like, how could they be? They do something that's, like, so structured and it must be a certain way that it, it, it just seems like so a like, very yeah. strange thing to me. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think that's such a dramatic misnomer because you can develop the same output in, like, So many different ways, like the approach to developing whatever it is that produces the UI in the end, it can be so, so creative. And like all of that, like, I think that's one of the things that they're trying to enforce throughout this book is that every single career can be more creative and can like approach their problems in a more creative mindset Mm -hmm. to result with better decisions and better ideas. So they define creative confidence as believing in your own ability to change the world. And I thought that was really interesting. Did you note that? Nope. That was, I think, also still in the the first chapter. And they talk about how, like, humans, we have this incredible idea to construct meaning and to, like, pull patterns together in a way that's emotionally meaningful as well as functional. Mm -hmm. And the entire book is set up to allow you to do that in a way that can change the world. Right. Right? And I think that's something that—I don't think we really incentivize that kind of thinking in our society, Mm -hmm. that you actually can have an impact and, like—
1: well, and it's interesting, too, this idea of change the world because it also, it sounds really, like, grandiose and ginormous, but the scale is not actually explicit. So you can change the world in, like, a teeny tiny little way, but it's just, like, causing change, I guess, is part of what they're getting to, Yeah, being the core component of it.
0: Yeah, I think about it being very much about, like, getting ahead of the work that you're doing as opposed to being pulled by it mm-hmm. and, like, in getting ahead of it and, like, jumping up in front of your ideas – You can like direct where things go as opposed to like just going along with the flow. Cause I think there's this concept of like a butt in a seat. (laughs) Like, Mm. what's the cost of the chair? Have you heard anything around this? Mm, Maybe. So it's this concept of like, if you weren't the person in your job, Mm -hmm. could anyone else who was like just sitting in your chair do it? Like, Mm. what's the difference between what you do versus what another person who was in that chair? And this is, uh, I think I first heard this around the finance industry where they're like, Oh, okay. What is it that you bring to this chair that is different from the average person that would be sitting in this chair, right? Interesting. And I think that's a really compelling way to think about what you do at your job. Like, what is that that thing above and beyond just the job itself that you do there? Mm -hmm. And I think creative confidence is about encouraging people into a state of action with a breadth of ideas. And so it's about, like, having faith and trust that you can get ahead of things and you don't right. need to just be pulled by the direction of the, where your job is pushing you.
1: Yeah. One definition that I did write down that's kind of related is self-efficacy. Yeah. So I wrote it down as, it's the belief that people can change a situation and accomplish what they set out to do. So that is also like, a, I think it's a very similar thing where you have this understanding of autonomy and power in what you do and how you go about your decisions and recognizing that you can choose to do something, the situation will change, and you can, at the end of it, potentially accomplish the thing that initially you set out to do. And they talk about how being able to believe that you have self-efficacy is core to being creative. Hmm. Because if you feel that you can try to do something and change it, but it won't actually happen, then
0: you lose your confidence in your creativity. Yeah. Yeah. And the desire there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about your career path? I mean, because obviously, like, you are the founder of your own company. Like, Mm -hmm. if you weren't in a position of self-efficacy, that'd be kind of hysterical.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, next to that definition, I wrote specifically for product things. Like, what startups are in general is you make... Something from nothing. Mm -hmm. So the belief that you can change and make something is core to, like, if you have no self-efficacy, then you would never ship anything. And with product, again, it's often, especially with, like,
0: new, I think it's more obvious when you're shipping, like, new features or Mm -hmm. new products. So you say there that it's more so for... Products that are newer. Do you think that's significantly different if you're working on an existing product, or like a new feature? Even like it's right. it's, it's just more obvious that like you
1: decide to do a thing and then you work on it and then it's there. Right. It's like it's ob- it wasn't there before and now it's there. Right. Versus the button has changed color. I think it's just less powerful in terms of you
0: recognizing how you can instantiate change. Yeah. So, I think that one of the main responsibilities of a PM on a team is to kind of Preserve the efficacy of everyone that's working around you mm. and be a bit of an umbrella for that team and keep them kind of shielded and safe. Mm-hmm. It's so easy when you're working in a large org to have to get so many people bought in and on board and like moving things forward can take mountains of work to pull sure. people along that I think that once you get enough momentum going, one of the things that I find some of the most joy in and also some of the most need for in my org is making sure that the people who are like the designers and the analysts and the engineers who are working together towards a problem have the freedom to like go towards that problem without having to like check everything right. every step of the way. Because I do think that it erodes your your confidence and desire to be mm-hmm. creative when you yeah. feel like you have to have everything approved yeah. and you don't get to like move yeah. in the way well, that you're comfortable. Also, it
1: makes it, it makes it such that you're incentivized to follow the more traditional path because the traditional path has been proven to have been confirmed in the past. And so then it's easier for you to do things that have previously been given like go-aheads. Mm-hmm. So you're incentivized to just do the same things again versus if you go too outside of historical norms. You could potentially go through, like, a deeper, more complicated, lengthier approval process mm-hmm. for doing it in that way. And so you're accidentally constraining the person's options.
0: Yeah. I kind of wonder at what point you need that in an org to keep every team from independently, like, creating things that are not visually cohesive. or Sure. Th- I guess I, I mean even just, like, process.
1: I guess would be one hmm. where it's like, oh, I'm going to do my spec in a different
0: way because I'm able like right. something like that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I do have some open questions in terms of like general org operations. Like how do you give the teams the freedom to do what they need to do in order to feel like they can bring their full creative selves right. without letting complete control go yep. where everyone would just like create this hodgepodge of a product because they like tacked on Different things that didn't have um, kind of an underlying cohesion.
1: And I I also question, like, I don't know if I quite understand as we're talking about it now, like the difference between self-efficacy and autonomy, because those seem to be
0: also like very tightly linked. So I think self-efficacy is the ability to do something and have it matter. Right. And the autonomy is the ability to choose what you do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I have self. It's the belief that people can change a situation and accomplish what they set out to do. So autonomy is more you're allowed to, I guess. Autonomy means you have permission to. Like, I am autonomous means you have permission to do that. Whereas well, like, self-efficacy is the belief that if
0: you're given that permission, then it'll work out. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's more so like Yeah, that, yeah. the autonomous person gets to pick and the self-efficacy. Person, <laughs> effective. The self-effective person gets to like that. They'll make do a it. And it'll happen. Yeah. I'm really like trying to figure out right now, like where is the line for what like a senior person in product leadership should be able to say or direct or like gatekeep or look for approval or like what is the process by which you can encourage your team to go in a direction that you think is best without necessarily cutting them off. Like, how much autonomy do you give a team? Right. I don't know the answer. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where it's probably highly dependent upon the culture, the people, the size, like all of these things. And you just have to think about in a way, like, what are the outputs and what works best for this team? And how do you experiment in a way that you're able to understand inputs and various outputs and how it all works at the end of the day? But there is no
0: right answer. Yeah.
1: Which leads to my next point. The knowing-doing gap. Mm. I loved that. (laughs) (laughs) I met up with this woman the other day, and she is leaving her job, and she wants to start her own thing. She wants to, like, start a startup. And she wanted to talk to me about how I had done it and blah, blah, blah. And it was one of these things where she kept asking me, like, a lot of questions just about the very, very early beginning beginning bits about Mm -hmm. doing it all. And I said to her at one point, I was like, you know, there is no right answer. I was like, all these questions that you're asking me, I can tell you what I did. They're probably not the right answer for you. Mm-hmm. And just so you know, you are not going to know what you're doing for the rest of time. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I hope you feel OK with this, because I still have no idea what I'm doing basically any of the time. And the one thing that I kind of wanted to note was that. In the case of what I'm doing right now, it's like making basically a brand new product in a brand new space, a brand new interface, brand new paradigm. And there's literally nothing that I can look to to understand what I should be making. And one of the previous methods that I used in working on other products was to look at existing products and copy them. And to like use the resources and energy that other companies have put into various features on their products To basically just like suck that in and put it in mind to recognize like, eh, you know, LinkedIn did this. They've tested this. They've clearly thought about this and spent a lot of time and energy on it. I'm just going to take that feature and copy it basically verbatim because I'm a tiny startup and I have no time. Whereas now I don't have the luxury Mm, (laughs) of being able to do that. But with this knowing doing gap. The one sort of problem that I have with it is, yes, I totally believe it. That gap will always be there. You need to just get really comfortable with it really quickly. The problem, though, that I have with it is that I think it prompts potentially people to have a sense of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird balance between how do you feel secure having the truth and, like, coming to terms with the fact that there is this knowing-doing gap – but not falling prey to feeling like an imposter. Can you just define the knowing doing gap? I mean, it's having a sense that you know what you're supposed to do and then a gap of time, resources, stuff that you do until you actually do the thing. And the idea is that gap is always going to be there and you can't solve the output of doing something by widening that gap and by spending more time and talking to more people and learning more things. You will never know what you need to know, and you need to just do it. And then also, as you do it, one of the effects will be that you will learn and you will have new knowledge. And the idea is how do you make that gap super short, and how do you keep the cycle time really high so you're constantly doing things that you don't know how to do, and then in the process, learn how to do those things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so with that, you're constantly operating under this state of, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, my God, what do I do? Flail, 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 which then is to me sort of in like competition to imposter syndrome when you're supposed to like you don't know what you're doing but you're like oh I'm going to like pretend and buck up and Mm -hmm. Superman in the bathroom when you actually know you're like I really don't know what I'm doing but I'm supposed to not be an imposter but 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 is difficult
0: so the the way that I understand the knowing doing gap is you may have always had this idea for a novel your whole life and you've been building these characters in your mind and thinking about it but you're not going to move forward to having a completed novel unless you start writing the novel. Mm -hmm. And so are you saying that if you don't know how to write the novel and you have like this imposter syndrome around it, how do you overcome that gap? No, I'm just talking about the relation between the two.
1: I just think there's a clear relation between the two.
0: Uh, So you're saying that the imposter syndrome
1: keeps you further away from the doing side. Not necessarily, no, I'm not saying that—I'm not sure exactly what the relationship is and which one leads to which one. I'm just saying, to me, there's clearly they are clearly related. And so if you're operating in this world where you're constantly—the goal is to push yourself to do stuff that you don't know how to do all the time— but you're being told by the outside world, you know what you're doing. Right. Don't worry. That feeling of not knowing what you're doing, that's not true. Right. Whereas, like, but in order to identify that you
0: have a knowing-doing gap, you have to internalize the fact that you don't know what you're doing. Right, right. So it's like this. It builds an imposter syndrome. Yeah, so it's, like, possibly, like, a self-reinforcing cycle. But I think that's what the entire book is about, is about how to—I don't think they really addressed imposter syndrome specifically. No. But I think the entirety of the book is to, like, combat imposter syndrome. Like at the base core level, it's not even about joining a new job and then be feeling like an imposter there. It's more like when you wake up in the morning, do you feel like you can't be creative? right? Because you can. Everyone can. Everyone literally is every day. And so I think that the the book is possibly like one of the better field books mm-hmm. to like moving forward in the face of uncertainty sure. around like not knowing what to do because it's it kind of celebrates that. right. And it points out that, like, None of us really know, and that's what allows us to be creative, and that's where our best ideas come from. Yeah. I actually hadn't thought about it that way, but I think it might be a really good manual for people who are like dealing with a lot of imposter syndrome.
1: Yeah, Yeah, to just say that this idea of creativity and the benefits of creativity can actually potentially only be fully accessed if and when you do have similar feelings as people who are experiencing imposter syndrome. The one other thing that I really liked in the book, as an example, when they were talking about this knowing-doing gap, was about the pottery students. So they were talking about pottery students and how they took a class and they split it in two. And they said, okay, team A or whatever, you guys, I want you to focus on building the highest quality, whatever the piece of pottery was, that you can possibly build over the semester, Team B, I want you guys to focus on building as many as you can. So it was a quality versus quantity experiment. And what do you think
0: happened? Yeah. So they what? were being graded. So Team yeah. A was being graded on the quality, yeah. and Team B was being graded quantity. on the quantity. Yeah. yeah. And so at the end, what happened was looking at it
1: from, you know, not thinking about it too deeply, you'd be like, oh, well, clearly the people who are focused on quality will have a higher quality um like output at the end, because that's what they're focused on. Versus it turns out that actually the quality of the pottery from team B, which did not have quality as one of the desired outputs for their product, they actually had higher quality pottery. And it goes back to this idea of with the knowing-doing gap and making it really short, it's only through like quick and fast iterations can you actually learn and get better at what you're doing as like, shown through this lens of these, like, pottery students working on these physical things. And, you know, if you focus on, like, I must spend a lot of time and resources, like, figuring out and learning and learning and learning before doing, you're going to end up lower than if you had just actually, like, build, 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 go, 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 do, do, do. You'll end up with a higher quality result just through doing.
0: Yeah, I had a note on the knowing-doing gap here. There's this great quote that they say that says, no matter how large the chasm, you can always narrow it by taking a step. I think about this all the time when people talk to me about, you know, they want to get into product or, you know, they want to talk about my career path in that direction. And every time someone asks me, like, oh, you know, how did you do it? I'm like, well, like, I took a tiny, tiny, tiny step and it, like, didn't really work out, but then it allowed me to take the next tiny, tiny, tiny step. And over the course of, like, 2-3 years it was like a full transition i mean it's kind of similar to like what you're talking about with this this startup founder that you were talking to mm-hmm. where These kinds of questions are not actually going to lead you to the right answers that you need. Like the answer isn't going to be like, oh, like in order to get into product, I should go to this meetup, which is like the first thing that I did, because like that's not the answer right now. Like for you, that may not be the answer for this point in time. For me, that might not even have been the answer. The answer is like take a step forward and like just be self-motivated and drive that yourself, Mm -hmm. because there's just so many different things that are the right answer. It's just you can't wait and figure out exactly the right one.
1: So yeah, taking a step I think is a great one. They actually gave a bunch of examples in the book on how to get over the gap. And so some of the advice that they gave was lower the stakes. So make it, instead of being like, this is the huge thing that will change the forever trajectory of the company, make it like one tiny feature that you can just like put out, learn quickly. And again, just narrow the gap between knowing you have to do something and actually doing it. Another one is just internalizing that, you are going to make mistakes and things are gonna go wrong and that is expected and that is the normal state of things and not to hold yourself to this expectation of it's gonna go out there and it's gonna be great. Another one was set a deadline. So they talk about, I don't remember this example very well, but they talk about this one group and they told them, okay, well, what if, like, here's this big project that we wanna work on, blah, 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 and the people on the team are thinking it'll be like a one or a three month project. And the person leading the meeting is like, what would you do if the deadline was 5 p.m. today? (laughs) And the people are like, WTF? Like, there's no way. And they're like, well, no, just like, like, try it and see what you come up with. And so they actually try it um, and they come up with and they have some really creative solutions because this deadline is forcing them to think about the problem in completely different ways. And then finally, the last one was just around team. And how do you establish just like really strong trust on the team and know that, When you are in this knowing doing gap, if you do and you do like I'm doing air quotes wrong or you do like the bad thing, you no longer feel like it's all on you and you have like shared ownership on the team of like, yeah, we decided that that was the thing to do and we did it and we learned a bunch and it makes it just easier if you know that it's not going to fall all on your shoulders and you're Mm -hmm. like upsetting everybody else and letting everybody in the team
0: down. Yeah, I think the deadlines one is really fascinating. I've seen it used to really great effect here, where it forces you, if you only have like a week or two to finish a project, you have to get real creative about how you're going to do it. And a lot of times I think people are nervous about deadlines because they feel like it's going to enforce that they take a suboptimal hacky path. Mm-hmm. But I think that they can be used really effectively to say like, no, like this has to be out by this week because we have an announcement and we have a big event or something like that. And we really want to include this in that announcement. So whatever you do, like, let's see if we can get this out within this time frame. And I've just seen that the creativity that comes out of that has been really phenomenal, just in personal experience here. And one of the things that I struggle with is that unless you have an external force with pushing that deadline, like you have an event that you don't control or there's like something like that going on it's really hard to bring a deadline into a team yeah. in a like a positive way yeah well right. it, that doesn't feel like jokey well it, yeah it, it doesn't that feels serious and yeah. earnest but also doesn't feel like I'm saying mm, I don't know if you're doing a good job here's a deadline right <laughs> you know like I think a lot of times it's really easy for a deadline to feel like, like you, you don't test. trust yeah like you don't trust the people yeah. like you're taskmastering or things like that but they're really really effective creativity tools and like the constraint breeds the creativity so I think that's something that I'll be experimenting more with in this upcoming quarter I mean I think
1: I I feel like you could probably do it in a way where you just normalize it in a way where you're like you know one out of every five things that we work on is going to have a crazy deadline Mm mm-hmm and you just make it so that it feels like it's at random versus it feels like it's dependent upon the work that they're doing. Mm, yeah. And that might be a way to remove the – it's like random screenings at the airport, which <laughs> have their own problems. But the same idea of people may potentially believe yeah, that yeah. if it's random, it's not anything to do with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think I might I, might, I might use that. You can report back. Speaking of experimenting, I think that's another thing that I've read in this book and then also heard in other places and seen work really well is that when you call something an experiment, Mm. it makes people a lot more comfortable working in a way that's more creative and doesn't have to succeed. Um, Because it's really easy when you're trying to be creative to try things that fail. (laughs) And that's scary. But if you call it an experiment and like if you use those semantics, it tends to open up a little bit more fluidity and like comfort. Mm -hmm.
1: The authors, David and Tom, Tom, David and Tom. there's a really great little, I don't know what it's called, pop-out? What is it called in, the, in a book? They have like a, a little call section, out, call-out, whatever, where they give some examples of how to draw different shapes and different people. And if people are in an action state, use this kind. If people are talking, use this kind. And... They're giving you some tools to help you feel more comfortable drawing and sketching because they believe that that's an amazing tool for having creative communication and exploring ideas on your own or with other people. So recently, I was in the office of a, I will not name them, VC, and it was really funny because I was talking to them about stuff and... At one point I wanted to show them something and I was looking around for a whiteboard and I saw that they had a couple little containers with Sharpies and they had erasers and all this stuff everywhere. And I so I walked over to the table and I'm talking to the guy and I'm like, oh blah, blah, and I, I take out a couple markers and then I stand there and I look around and there's no whiteboard.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: my God. And I was like, oh my God, are you guys just like pretending that you're creative type? And you like you have these props here for people to come in and because that's sort of like the the, like stereotype of founders and you know there's like the beautiful mind stuff and I just thought it was hilarious I was like and the the dude I was talking to was a little bit like oh uh, I don't maybe we didn't put the whiteboard in here and it's like the swankiest office that has clearly been designed to the nth degree and I'm like okay dude like clearly. You guys just never actually draw anything in here, and these are just for show. So, so so then it was funny. So then I kind of it was glass. So they had glass on the wall, and it was interesting too because so at my house I I have big windows and I use the windows all the time to draw on them because a whiteboard it's like it's only so big and these windows are really big, and it was again it was really funny because this guy clearly never draws on, like, windows or has not, like, experimented around the edges of drawing on things with erasable markers. Because he, when I told him, I was like, oh, I'll just draw on the window. He was like, oh, you can't draw. And I was like... It'll erase the whiteboard markers. He was like, do they? And I was like, oh, my God. So I would question all of you if you have, because I think think a lot of people think that, you know, oh, we have, like, sketch pads and things all around our office and blah, blah, blah. And if nobody's using them, it might just be, like, a fun little test to look around and see, like, do people actually feel enabled? Do they have Post-its? Do they have different colored markers? Do they have erasable markers and spots and spaces to use them? Because if you're telling people that they should be taking these actions, they need to actually have the tools
0: to be able to do it. Yeah, that's one of the things that I absolutely love about the office that I'm in right now is they're just... Infinite spaces to doodle, and I see I mean, there's probably like three or four meeting rooms that I'm in most often, nearest to where I sit. And every single day, I walk into one of those meeting rooms. It's got a different thing up on the whiteboard, mm-hmm. and there's like this expectation that you can always erase something that's mm-hmm. on one of those meeting whiteboards. But I'm there, and I erase it, and I like doodle some stuff, and I'm working on explaining some concepts. And then the next day, I come back for a meeting in that room, and my thing's gone, and someone else's is there. Right. And there's like the rapidity through which we go through these kind of like temporary artifacts of of idea space. Um, just makes me feel really excited. Yeah.
1: Have you guys come up with a method? This is something that I'm
0: trying to figure out right now. Like do you take pictures of your Yeah, so I do a few things. Um if I have to run away immediately, I'll take a pano because mm-hmm. I find that the panorama usually gets like the entirety of the whiteboard in mm-hmm. a way that like yeah and I can read it. Because, like, a single picture, I never can quite get enough information in somehow. The thing that I really much prefer but, but doing— But then do
1: you, like, where do you put that?
0: Oh. Because I'm also
1: like, do, I, do these just end up in a folder
0: to nowhere? Right, right, right. So the thing is, I, I, I make a point of documenting anything from a whiteboard that needs to be documented— and I prefer to do it in that moment, not to take a picture, but to sit down at the end of the meeting and then write it up in a structured way, because it's really easy for everything to kind of like mind map around as you're drawing on a whiteboard. And I find the process of taking that and putting it into a structure to document for later is a really good process for your mind to like find a place for all this stuff to sit intellectually. And so, like, that 15 minutes or so after any of these exercises I find to be really, really valuable time. It helps me move the ideas forward mm-hmm. better than the times when I just walk out of the room. I wanted to just have a little bit of a dialogue with you around how to encourage other people to be more creative. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you've seen that's worked. I know as you've been working with a bunch of people uh, both in and out of uh, your company, what is it that you've found that's been most effective to get people like thinking in a broader mindset and feeling comfortable and safe to do that? So. One thing that I've noticed walking out of a room sometimes is there's, like, an elation and this energy and excitement and, like, let's go work on this thing. And other times people walk out of the room and they're just kind of, like, meh and <laughs> blah. Uh, and I'm trying to, like, pinpoint what it is that gives people the yeah, energy sometimes and kind of deflates them at others. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've I've been able to, to identify so far is that this yes and energy versus well, but... And that's something that comes out of, I mean, I've done a bunch of improv exercises and I come from like a background in theater. And so Mm -hmm. I have a bunch of exercises that I remember from high school around how do you encourage someone else on the stage with you to like keep the conversation going? Mm -hmm. As the first rule in improv is if someone says something to you on stage, you can only ever respond with a yes kind of interaction. Mm -hmm. You can't say no. Like, if you ever say no on stage in an improv scene, it kills the energy of the scene. Mm -hmm. And so, there's this exercise that you play when you're learning how to do improv called yes and, where someone will say something and, like, kind of bounce an idea to you, like, oh, what an interesting blue bear over there. And then you have to respond with yes. Yes. And
1: did you see the strawberry pie he's eating?
0: Yes. And and then like I respond with yes and and we kind of build that story together. And it's actually a really counterintuitive experience because people tend to want to take an idea. And this is just an experience that you you have a lot when you are starting an improv or when you see other people start an improv where you take an idea and you kind of want to say, no, he's not he's not blue. He's pink. Right. But that energy kills a scene and people right. like just deflate and they can't like pick that up and go anywhere so i've, I've noticed this in product contexts where you can have a yes and energy or you can have a well but right. or no but and no matter how you verbalize it it comes out and I've noticed that the yes and energy is the one where people end up they may totally change their ideas by the end of the meeting, but because you were yes anding the whole time, it ended up on like this crescendoing energy as opposed right. to deflating.
1: Yeah, so relate it to that. One of the suggestions that they give in the book is this idea of if you go into a meeting and I guess the assumption is that you haven't been creative, so therefore the quantity of things is lower. But if you go into a meeting and you only have like two ideas, then you're going to act in a way where you're very protective over those two ideas and you're going to fight for them and you're going to try to, like, own them and make sure that they happen and defend them. Mm -hmm. Versus if you go into the meeting and you work with other people and you get a bunch of ideas up and you fill... The last book we did was talking about, like, filling the idea pool,
0: mm. remember? Yeah, so it's yeah. kind
1: of like the same idea where you just, like, get a bunch of stuff out. Everyone has shared ownership over it. And then everyone works together to move things forward and to help choose and make decisions around what they should do next. And so similar to the yes and, it's about having lots of options and lots of potential for people to buy in and feel ownership and conviction around what they're doing versus feeling that they need to protect the one thing that they have
0: yeah, I found that the emotional currents around ideas are. This comes back to some things we keep talking about here. Is that the, a lot of times it's not the words; it's it's what's underneath. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to be said about like emotionally maintaining that space for people to be creative and to feel like their self worth isn't on the line, and that they're like they're going to have the space to be heard, and that eventually you can work together and collaborate towards something. But that even like starting that in the beginning is something that they have the emotional space to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that. I mean, defines a successful team.
1: Yeah, and they I don't remember this part very well. I didn't take a note on it, but I know near the end of the book, they talk about how creativity is based off of the sum of your experiences and what you've seen and how you've existed in the world and using that as an example for why having diverse teams matters and having people with a lot of different experiences can lead to people thinking about things differently and solving problems differently and noticing things that someone else wouldn't notice and how if you have a group of people that are very similar in terms of the experiences that they've had, the potential outcomes or potential solutions that they're able to identify will be very narrow versus if you bring in a group that is much broader in what their life has been and what they've seen and what they've done.
0: Yeah. One of the things that goes hand in hand with that is ensuring that everyone feels like they can contribute. Yeah. Like if I'm in a room where I feel like I'm the drastic minority in like uh, having a background in art per se and not, not necessarily being technical or like maybe I'm the only woman in the room or something. If I feel like people won't hear what I have to say or see it as like equally valid because I don't share something with them. I'm going to be less likely to share at all, which yeah. is going to deflate. Like, yeah. You're going to fall to the lowest common denominators of experiences and ideas.
1: That was the one thing, too, that I really liked in this book. is they, And again, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but they say at one point, you know... This is not easy. They say. They actually say, because I think that's one of the problems that a lot of people have around this issue is they're just like, oh, we just have to hire people who are different, Mm -hmm. and then once they get them in the door, they're kind of like, okay, we did it, and they don't recognize that. Okay, great, but now you have to build systems around these people and around everyone so that people actually feel that they can be themselves and they can contribute. And they say in the book, they're like, it is not easy. Because I think a lot of that just kind of gets glossed over. It's mostly about, like, finding the right people and getting them in the room. Mm -hmm. But that's literally, like, step zero.
0: Yeah. Do you have any notes to talk about, like, specifically ideation processes? Because I just had a couple of things to say on that. So I've done a fair amount of, like, explicit brainstorm meetings and things like that that are supposed to, like, force a, a going wide energy. And some interesting things come out of that. So one of them, I've noticed over time that some of the best ones are the ones where I break people up into small pods, mm-hmm. and each pod is working on the same ideas as all the other pods are, but doing so in isolation with just a cross-section of two or three people from different functions, so that when all the pods come back together to share like which ideas they had, there's much more diversity of ideas sure. than if we had like done it as a group, necessarily. And it's also super interesting to see, like, what the overlap of ideas are in Mm -hmm. those cases and what are the ones that, like, resonate across the team the most. I found that that's one of the better ways to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to be heard. And, like, it kind of forces everyone to speak because a lot of— Yeah, if you're only in a group of two or three people, then it's hard to not participate. Exactly. It can be quite awkward to not participate. And so giving someone, like, the opportunity to speak is very different from, like— giving them kind of the mandate to speak right. because the opportunity to speak in a, like a room with 12 people is not necessarily going to turn into everyone feeling like they can be heard yeah. because that's kind of scary. Yeah. So that's one thing that I do particularly like. Something that's kind of a little non-intuitive that I've uncovered in my time here is sometimes mm-hmm. your go-wide brainstorming ideation timeframes can kind of backfire on you later on in the project phase where... Your resources are constrained to the point where you don't actually get to do a lot of the things right. that people had energy around. Uh, and so emotionally managing the idea generation, this going wide is not necessarily saying that we're going to like do these things per se, definitely not all of them, and certainly not most of them. And I think that's something that it's, it's easy to lose sight of if you're just like participating in these brainstorming sessions, but then like you feel like you don't get heard because your idea didn't get put into place, right. but like we can't. We don't have time to do all of these right. things, right? And um, so then potentially the risk is that people will feel that they shouldn't even bother
1: contributing because their thing never makes it there anyway. Exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. so being able to like set aside like the ideation time from the execution time and making sure people mm-hmm. like feel some kind of level of emotional comfort around the fact that there's not a direct bridge.
1: Yeah, but I guess, again, that's back to the point that they make about if you come into the room and you co-create them right mm-hmm. so it's about if you can get people to believe that they're part of all of them then in theory that risk might be a little bit lower but the pod thing i guess kind of makes it such that it's like i guess trying to figure out that trade-off of like the pod is a great mechanism to get a lot of people to surface ideas but then it also potentially puts you at risk for people feeling a high degree of ownership over them Versus people feeling that they are created in the group. Right.
0: And even if you just come to a conclusion around, like, one big idea out of the group that was co-created, you may not be able to implement it when it comes time, right? It may may turn out that, like, oh, this big idea, while we were all really excited about it, and it's great. Turns out, X, Y, Z reasons, resource constraints, blah, 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 we can't do it. And that's a little emotionally difficult for people to handle if they feel like the brainstorm is in order to put something into place. Like Mm -hmm. It's supposed to surface things so that you can, but it's not always going to directly translate into something that goes into the product. Right. So then I guess it's
1: just framing that as an experiment as well. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. One final thing that I thought was interesting, and I have kind of some questions around but thought I'd raise it, is the question between actually making decisions and moving forward versus taking the time to, because what this book talks about is like, when you're creative, you need to like go wide and collect a bunch of stuff and brainstorm and blah, blah, blah. And the idea is that you're spending a lot of time doing that. Like that, that takes time to right. do. And so therefore, by default, you're not making decisions as quickly because you have to go through this process of thinking a bunch of things and getting people together and coming up with ideas that you, like the fraction that you'll do is a lot smaller. Than the number that you'd come up with in total. Mm -hmm. And so this trying to figure out this balance of okay, how do we know that we're still moving forward and are gonna make decisions and get stuff done versus we're spending too much time like thinking and brainstorming and dreaming of potential futures that you know we will never actually get to. So I don't really have an answer to that or how to think about it, but I do know that I went to a workshop last year that was specifically on decision-making, and there were some people there who had been studying and taking note of their decision-making process for like the previous year or something. And they were all asked to bring to mind a decision that they had made that was really big and important, and what would they change if they could go back in time and change it and the most common thing by far that people said that they wish they had done was they wish they had taken more time before making the decision. Hmm. So, it was something that I thought was interesting that, and also that they had like expanded what they thought their options were and kind of stewed a little bit longer. So, I thought that was really interesting because it sort of points to a potential at least sort of lightweight, you know, qualitative answer to the trade-off between move quickly and make a decision versus spending some time being more creative in your mm. potential options and brainstorming and working with other people and all that stuff. So
0: this book is mostly about that expansive part of the process. It's not really about how to contract back down, which is the quintessential problem in design thinking is like once you've gone really broad, like how do you know when it's time to like bring it back in? This book didn't really cover that, right? Yeah. yeah. But I mean I think it's a big enough topic to handle it. Like, you could have a whole book that's just about how to develop better skills at going broad. And again, I mean, this book isn't about how to go broad. It's about how to make sure that you feel like you can. Like, right. you have that confidence. You and that you should. You should. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A big part of the book early on is about, like, selling the reader on the fact that, like, everyone has untapped opportunity in their current role if they just brought more creativity to it. So like once they kind of bring you along with like, yes, this is, you know, everyone can be creative and you'll like get a lot of benefit from that. And here's how to like boost your own personal ability to like be creative. And here's how to boost your own personal ability to believe in yourself, that you can be creative. And then there's a little bit around like, here's tactically how to be creative. But I think more so than not, they just point to other books about like how to be creative. There's like the back of the napkin on like how to do the drawing stuff. I think this is actually a really powerful book for people who maybe don't actually have to be creative in their job. I think for a lot of people, right. like people who start companies and or people who like designers per se or, or maybe probably PMs as well. Like we just we know like this is stuff that we, we bring to our, our work and we know that we have to be creative. I'd say for a lot of analysts or engineers, they might not realize yep. as much. And this would be super valuable. One thing that I think I really enjoyed about this book is it talks a lot about how failure is a really, really big part of success. And I think that's kind of the the thing that this whole book hinges on, which is that you don't have to be pristine in order to be better. And like you'll get better if you let go of this expectation that you have to be perfect. I mean, it points to uh, who are all the famous inventors that had all the failures, oh, right. right, before yeah. they had any, like Mozart even, and Einstein, yeah. and they aren't necessarily failure-free. Mm-hmm. In fact, they say that it's quite the opposite. The most prolific geniuses tend to be also the most prolific at failing. Yeah. Uh, they just <laughs> are prolific, period, and yeah. then some successes boil to the top. And I just think that's such an effective way to think about living, which is like if you just produce a lot— You're more likely to produce some good stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Back to the pottery. Yeah, exactly. The the pottery, yeah. The one thing that I found in being a founder and making various products, people always talk about, you know, startups, failure. Failure's most likely outcome. failure. And everybody talks about failure, and there's this, like, fetishization of failure Mm. in startup world and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah, this thing I'm doing might fail. Okay, I'm like, get it, check. But the one thing that I didn't realize at the very beginning was the rate of failure. So I expected, like, the company might fail. I didn't necessarily realize that literally multiple, multiple, multiple times a day things would fail. <laughs> <laughs> and so just the the rate of failure, I was like, oh, okay, now now I get it. And it wasn't until I was actually in it. So I bet as well for people who are reading this book who are not used to this mindset of failing, they might think about like, oh, yeah, you know, once I'm randomly making this up, like once a week, once a month, like my thing I'm doing might fail. Whereas in actuality, it's literally like multiple times an hour. Something will fail or something will not work or you will do something in a way that you learn from it and adjust, which you could call a failure. So that was the one thing with respect to failure that I know I learned really early on, and I'm happy that I did, just around the rate
0: of failure. I think that's one of the things that's so exciting about being in this industry, and it's the thing that drew me to this industry from a distance, is that in order to have that rate of failure, it implies that you have that rate of iteration. Right. So if you have, like, 10 iterations an hour in something you're trying to do, and not necessarily something you're trying to ship, but something you're trying to do— And nine of those fail. Like, you've learned so much more than if you only have one iteration a day. Yeah. And that's something this industry is just really geared well toward. Yeah. They have this great quote, if you want good ideas, start with a lot of ideas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So overall, I found this book a really handy kind of jump start Mm -hmm. for if people are trying to figure out, well, it really sets the stage for the Mm -hmm. fact that, like, you could benefit from being more creative. Right. And I think that that's something that is not necessarily taken for granted in our society. I think we we kind of pass off creativity to the artists and we say it's their job and not my job is to, like, spin up this code or, like, develop this model or things like that. And I think that this is a really powerful book to shift that type of thinking for people who don't think of their jobs this way already.
1: Right. So like I said at the beginning, I think to me it was – basically just proving things that I feel that I agree with and believe. What's interesting is, I mean, I think there's probably even founders who believe that they're not creative and they think of what they're doing as being more like they know what they need to build, they're building it, and it'll be done, and it's a I think it's potentially dependent upon like category or type of thing that you're building. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of, we often talk about who we would recommend this book for. So, I think it's difficult based off of job titles specifically to recommend this to people. Yeah. Because I think it depends a lot. But probably anyone who feels like their job has like known inputs and known outputs and feels like they have full clarity around what they do is probably more ripe to include more creativity mm. in what they do versus somebody like me. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what I'm doing any of the time. Clearly, in order to get anything done, then you have you are very creative in how you do it. Mm. So I wonder if that's sort of a,
0: like a framing for him yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting way to approach that. Like if you feel like you have a known solution to your job day over day, then this is probably a more interesting book for you. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I would say is that it's kind of the empowerment book for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't feel like you're really excited and empowered and enabled in your job, then this might give you the tools and the mindset to right. think about how you could be. Because it does give you like, well, how can you think about bringing more creativity to your process? And so if you if you wake up in the morning and you're like, ho, hum, hum, drum, this is possibly a really exciting book for you because it might totally shift the way you interact with and think about your job.
1: Yeah, I really like they talk about how if you go to your job and you're like 50% of yourself is there, then how do you actually unlock this other part of you and your capacity to be your full self and to get out of your career and your job what you want? And I think what they're saying is that other 50%
0: can be accessed through creativity. Yeah. I would also say for people who are in a position to affect the work of other people around them, so if you're a manager or if you run a team or a product manager or something like that, if you're in a position to inspire more creative confidence in those around you this is also a really good read um, because I feel that when I get up in the morning I have a lot of agency and I can come into work and like bring my full self and it's very exciting but when I read this book I'm thinking mostly about how can I instill some of this like self-confidence in the others that I work with and how can I like build this safety around my entire team and the book does specifically address that lens of like how to bring this to your team uh, so I think that's another really useful target audience. Are we ready for pony time? Yes, I would say I would do somewhere between three and a half and four ponies. I think I probably like this book more than you did. I think it's given me a lot to think about around how to translate the way I feel about my work to the people around me and like specific bridges to build particular exercises and things like that. I have at least five things I'm going to be building into, like, the monthly work cadence that I'm on with my team. So this has given me, like, a bunch of energy and excitement around that.
1: So I actually want to give it a higher rating than you, yeah. So I think, I mean, I was sort of like four, four and a half ponies. And, I mean, while I felt the content wasn't necessarily new or novel to me, I thought that they did do a really great job proving out why it matters. The examples were really great. What they focused on, I think, was, like, important, like what we were talking about with decision-making. They don't really get to the, like, okay, and now let's think about how you use all this stuff to then make decisions. They were very focused on, okay, this is about people to understand what is creativity, how can it benefit you, and how do you get to a point where you can be creative in your job. And I think it was really focused, and it did a really great job with that. There's also, we didn't talk about it in any of our examples, but they go through a ton of Little activities that you can do, which I think are really great, like hands-on practice around creativity. That, what is the expression? Your creative muscle, the muscle, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Going, I thought it was really well done. Even though, yeah, I don't think I was necessarily the the best audience for it. I think that it was really well done. I really enjoyed it, and I think it's also coming from two people who have proven that they're able to exist in the world and create profitable, amazing products and businesses through being and leveraging creativity as much as possible.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, again, I'm Anna Marie Clifton, product manager at Yammer. You can find me on Twitter at TweetAnnaMarie. And I am Sandy McPherson,
1: co-founder of D-Double. And you can find me on Twitter at SandyMac,
0: S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Clearly Product. And send us a tweet if there's a particular book that you'd like to have us read or a particular topic you'd like to hear us go into. And also don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Until next time. Adios.